a fire on the mountain burning out of control. The skies set ablaze in all its red and gold. The temperature's rising and the wind is blowing hot. We gotta turn this ship around before we run aground. We gotta turn this ship around before we run aground. Welcome to Off the Record with Paul Hood here on WKXL AM and FM, streamed live over the internet and archived at nhtalkradio.com for your binge-listening pleasure. We're brought to you by The Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, or other forms of memory impairment. Join a tour, celebrate life at the Birches, call 224-9111 and find out what life at the Birches can be all about. We really appreciate their support and I appreciate that today I am joined by the irrepressible, the stentorian, the uh, magnificent Chase Hageman. Chase, welcome. Paul, you're too kind. I know, I'm too kind. I'm buttering you up. Now, <laughs> Chase is uh, joining me today in his individual capacity. Uh, anything he says or doesn't say, anything he does or doesn't do, which I'll only describe to you over the air because uh, you can't see it and I can. But he's here as an individual. He's not here uh, for his work and his official capacity. Um, but he's a good friend and uh, actually a, a funny guy with a real sense of humor. We'll see, we'll see whether or not uh, we get any of that from him. But uh, don't take anything he says uh, as uh, anything official. His, any opinions or anything he says here are only his own. Right. And as a lawyer, I'm sure that disclaimer was really, really helpful, Paul. <laughs> that was a very, very helpful uh, disclaimer. And, uh, you know, the FCC really appreciates when I disclaim uh, anything. Um, and, I, you know, I made that up on the spot. I didn't I didn't write it out. Yeah. I didn't research I didn't sign it. anything. <laughs> Chase hasn't signed anything. So we're all in real trouble. But there are a couple of things going on in the news, some of which involve the law. And Chase and I are both lawyers. I mean, uh, my listeners may or may not know that um, I'm I'm an attorney. Um, I'm still uh, of counsel at my law firm, uh, Shaheen and Gordon. I, I practice mostly mediation these days. I'm a former congressman, so I know a little bit about uh, the law and what's going on. Chase is, in, uh, among other things, uh, trained as an attorney. And you have vastly more experience than I do, Paul. I, I've, I've fallen into the public policy realm. My stint as a traditional attorney was not nearly as long as your career. Well, that's true. That's because I'm old and you're not. Uh, but, you know, there have been some very interesting developments in the law this week that I wanted to touch on. Um, the The first one um, is, is about Michael Cohen. So Michael Cohen is a New York attorney, and Michael Cohen was Donald Trump's fixer for many, many, many years. Um, if there was a problem, Michael Cohen would handle it for the Trump and the Trump organization. He was, in effect, Donald Trump's personal 
conciliary. He was the conciliary, okay? So everybody, like Trump, needs a conciliary. And for him, Michael Cohen was a conciliary. Is would, Cohen Italian? He would go, he would go <laughs> at Trump, yeah, but the organization of the Trump organization is looking a little bit more from where I sit uh, like an organization these days, and more like a family, you know? He calls it a family, and then Michael Cohen is the fixer. Now, I don't want to offend anybody with uh, talking like it is about the organization, but everybody knows what I'm talking about, and that's a little bit more like a like a what a Trump organization is uh, working like, and Michael Cohen was a conciliary. So, I mean, he was he was the Fredo of of the of the of the Trump organization. He he would go out there and fix things. So Donald Trump wanted to cozy up to the Russians. Michael Cohen would cozy up to the Russians. My Donald Trump had a problem with a porn star. Michael Cohen was the guy who would do the fixing. I mean, Michael Cohen was so deeply enmeshed with Donald Trump that he said, at least at one point, and we'll find out whether or not it's true, that he borrowed $130,000 personally to pay off Stormy Daniels, I, uh, the the uh, uh, whose real name is Stephanie Clifford, the uh, female adult film star uh, with whom Donald Trump dallied apparently in 2006, um, and they wanted to silence her before the election. So Michael Cohen was the guy for the job. He was so deep into the Trump organization that he borrowed the money. He said personally paid off Stormy Daniels, and you'll all remember the big brouhaha about did Trump know about it? Did he authorize it? Where did the money come from? The question is, is it an illegal campaign contribution because uh, Cohen borrowed the money, Trump paid him back the money from the organ- from the Trump organization. This is during the pendency of a campaign because certainly after the Access Hollywood tapes in which uh, it came out that Donald Trump was on a bus talking to some guy, talking about the fact that as a star, he could do anything he wanted with women. They just came up and he could kiss them and grab them by the you-know-whats and all of that stuff in the campaign, which I don't know if Americans care about anymore. Maybe we've just come to accept amorality, immorality, and aberrant sexual behavior like a, the deviant behavior alleged to be that of the president is normal. But I don't think so. But anyway, they were desperate to keep that more of that slushy stuff out of the campaign. So Cohen's job was to silence Stormy Daniels and buy her silence with $130,000, which she was paid. And then she went out, uh, started talking and wanted to um, avoid apparently an alleged agreement she had assigned not to uh, not to talk. And Cohen was the guy that the Trumps wanted to do the fixing. And Cohen had his own issues. I mean, he was deep into the Russian taxi medallion business in New York. Because these days, the Russians control all taxi medallions in New York. There, there is like, a, you know, there was another kind of, of organization. Now there is also a big Russian organization, both here and in Russia. 
and 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 Cohen Cohen was the guy who was connected. He got so deep into Donald Trump that he apparently recorded hours and hours and hours of tapes uh, with his boss. And when the FBI, when the FBI showed up unannounced at his Regency hotel room where he was living and conducted simultaneous raids on the Regency hotel room on his apartment, on his office, seizing boxes of evidence and hours and hours of tapes concerning Donald Trump. You can imagine that red flags went up in Trumpdom. And Cohen struck a very... Um, very uh, aggressively, aggressively loyal tone for a long time. And for a long time, Donald Trump and his other conciliary, Rudy Giuliani, Rudy, Rudy, Rudy Giuliani, the former prosecutor from New York, the former mayor of New York, Rudy Giuliani, the guy who sucks his teeth uh, like that every time he talks and has a girlfriend, by the way, in New Hampshire. Uh, Rudy Giuliani. Um, they all were saying great things about Michael Cohen. They were talking about what a great guy he was, what a loyal, honest guy, how they knew that no harm was ever going to come to them from Michael Cohen because Cohen was trustworthy. Cohen would tell the truth. Cohen uh, would never you know, do anything to harm them or anything like that. It was a beautiful relationship. Michael Cohen felt all the warm and fuzzies you'd feel if Donald Trump loved you. And then something happened. Michael Cohen pleaded guilty. Guilty as charged. (laughs) Guilty. He pleaded guilty to multiple counts without a cooperation agreement, but his lawyer, Lanny Davis, went on TV Uh, on just as Cohen was pleading guilty to say he knows an awful lot about Donald Trump. And I'm betting that Robert Mueller is interested in talking to him. And today, ladies and gentlemen, on the news, that's this Friday, on the news, it's now been reported that Michael Cohen has been spending hours and hours and hours and hours with Robert Mueller dumping, dishing the dirt on Donald Trump. I, for one... Can't wait to find out what happens when the dirt that that Michael Cohen is dished on Donald Trump gets dumped onto the American public record. And we see just how deep Trump's connections to Russia were, how deep the money ties between his organization and Russia were, how much influence the Russians had over Trump, which I believe is one of the things that will we will find propelled whatever happened between the Russians and Trump in this election. And although uh, the president keeps saying, no collusion, no collusion, no collusion, we haven't heard too much of that lately. I wish we had a video camera in here because I have been getting a huge kick out of your facial expressions and and voices, Paul. Uh, So I have to work with Republicans and Democrats in my day job, so I I wanted to ask a follow-up question. My wife and I recently watched uh, the movie Frost Nixon, uh, which, you know, talks about Watergate. And uh, so it kind of put my mind in this frame of reference here with all the stuff going on with the uh, Mueller investigation and what's going on with Cohen. So my question for you is... Say everything that you're hoping for or you're talking about comes out in the reports and in the investigation, in whatever Cohen has to say. In your mind, 
what's it take for impeachment? Because that's been a topic in, in the news and in the Democratic Party. You know, what do you think needs to come out for something like that to occur? It's an interesting question. If there's a Republican Congress, uh, the answer is there probably will never be impeachment unless there is some uh, red-handed finger-in-the-till, hand-in-the-cookie-jar evidence that is so unabashedly clear uh, that Trump knew about and sanctioned uh, or ordered uh, the kind of interference in our elections uh, that we now know occurred. Uh, It would be very difficult for a, uh, I think it will not happen with a Republican Congress because of the kind of partisanship and lack of statesmanship that exists. Um, On the other hand, the Constitution calls for impeachment upon high crimes and misdemeanors. Those are not um, those are not necessarily defined. Uh, They have been um, employed from time to time in our history. Um, And and high crimes and misdemeanors of the kind that warrant impeachment have included obstruction of justice. And I believe that there will be sufficient evidence in the Mueller investigation to show obstruction of justice. But again, Whatever the Mueller investigation reveals, whatever Trump does with the Republican-controlled Congress, uh, it's going to be very difficult to see uh, impeachment. But it's a it's a it's a serious step. It's one that casts the country into a constitutional crisis. Many would say, and I would agree, we're already suffering from a constitutional crisis because of the conduct. Um, which I won't elaborate now, about Trump. I think his Trump has has, has propelled us uh, into a crisis in which the democratic institutions of our country are severely undermined. And unfortunately, at this point, um, my real sorrow is that the Repu- my, my, my Republican friends uh, have not stepped forward to uh, exercise statesmanship, but we'll see what it takes. Now, I just want to go very quickly before uh, our break to the breaking news of the day, which I rarely get into, but the breaking news of the day um, uh, is all about, you guessed it, President Trump and his tweets. For a week, uh, the president has been able to restrain himself from getting overly involved in a tweet storm about the allegations uh, by Professor Ford that Trump's nominee for the Supreme Court, uh, Brett Kavanaugh, uh, sexually assaulted and abused her uh, when they were uh, young teenagers um, uh, in nearby prep schools. Um, her her account, now that uh, it has become public, uh, is of a lurid a sexual assault of the kind that uh, we have heard all too often uh, happening between men and women, between boys and girls. Trump, uh, probably on the advice of his aides, was able to restrain himself from tweeting for a week as the turmoil has raged in Washington about whether uh, Professor Ford would testify, under what conditions she would or will testify, whether, whether there will be further hearing, uh, when it will be held, and who will speak. But this morning, apparently, he had one of his classic Trumpian eruptions. And in this tweet storm, he went at the accuser of Brett Kavanaugh. He went after uh, Professor Ford. 
claiming that Brett Kavanaugh was simply being hounded uh, by left-wing radicals who wanted to destroy him uh, and said, well, if Professor Ford had anything to say, why didn't she go to the FBI 36 years ago? And all I'll say, ladies and gentlemen, is that if there is a bigger example, if there's a more serious, flagrant example of the imbecility and ignorance of uh, the male species in connection with um, its relationship with the females uh, of our of our of our planet, uh, Donald Trump is it. He exemplified in that tweet all that is wrong in the way women, uh, the way men view women. Uh, and the allegations of assault. He does this in the face of the Me Too movement. Uh, We're going to see what happens with Brett Kavanaugh, uh, but we have uh, an accusation that is serious. And frankly, whether or not it, 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 whatever happened back then, uh, what Brett Kavanaugh has done is simply denied it and cast this in a really impossible light for him. Because if he'd said, hey, I was 17, I was a bad boy, I was drunk, uh, I did lots of things I'm not proud of, and I reformed, I changed my life, I fixed myself, and, I held, and I've been an exemplary citizen for the rest of my life, and I don't remember that, but if I did it, I'm so, so sorry for hurting that girl and causing her the kind of pain and distress that I did. I can't apologize deeply and profoundly enough. But what he said was, I deny it. It never happened. And so now it's a matter of credibility. Do we want a Supreme Court justice who appears to be lying? That's the question. Trump, of course, has missed it again. He thinks that by destroying the accuser, he'll somehow avoid what may be the inevitable withdrawal of Kavanaugh's nomination. This is Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXLAM and FM, streamed live over the Internet, brought to you by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community, designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, or other forms of memory impairment. Join a tour, celebrate life at the Birches, call 224-9111. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back to Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXLAM and FM, streamed live over the Internet and archived at nhtalkradio.com for your binge-listening pleasure. We're brought to you by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community, designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, or other forms of memory impairment. You can join a tour and learn more about life at the Birches by calling 224 224- Nine one one one. Well, I'm joined for this segment by two important people. Chase Hageman is here from the Concord Coalition, and on the phone with us from down in the swamp, Western Wamp of uh, Fix Politics. Now, gentlemen, welcome to Off the Record. Thanks for having us, Paul. Yeah, thank you, sir. So, Western Wamp, the name is familiar. Uh, WAMP spelled W-A-M-P because I was in Congress from 2007 to 2011. I had the honor to serve two terms representing New Hampshire's second district uh, as a Democrat. The second district, Weston, is the left side of the state in more ways than one. Uh, (laughs) And and I'm pretty sure that I served with your dad 
um, Zach Womp, who is now... You did? Yeah. And, and Zach, Both of us, Turk. Right. And Zach is now um, working with Fix Politics Now and Issue One. Uh, I believe that he is the chair of, of that effort. Is, am I correct? That's right. He's the chair, the co-chair of the 200 former members of the Congress caucus uh, that is standing across all 50 states from the far left to the far right uh, to talk about the fact that money has this overwhelmingly negative influence on our campaigns and our electoral process. And it's really been his first foray in politics in the eight years since he left. Now, the only thing I want to correct uh, for the record is that I have the good sense as a guy who grew up in Tennessee to still live in Tennessee. So I do some work out of the swamp, but I raised my three kids in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Well, when I went to Congress, one of the first things I did was co-sponsor legislation to try to address um, my concerns about that the very, that very issue. Um, the first issue um, what is, for me, the money in politics, and I experienced it uh, as a congressman. I, I dealt with it every, every day because it soon felt... Um, after, as a freshman congressman, that my job had less to do with learning how to be a congressman and deal with legislation and, and matters of the budget and what was going on in my committee, and a lot more with going to the um, you know four by six cubicle that I'd been assigned to spend uh, ungodly numbers of hours every day raising money for the next campaign. And I mean that, that was literally among the first things that happened to me when I got to Washington. And, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not naive. I, I wasn't, I wasn't um, uh, naive about, about it, but it, it quickly became clear to me that, that at least as important as everything I was doing as a congressman, at, certainly to my staff and many others, was the notion that I would have to go out and raise money for the next campaign, which, after all, was only two years away. So I'd better get to the call room and uh, stay stay there during the day making calls to people who used to be my friends and uh, and then the staff would let me know oh there's a committee vote coming or there's a floor vote coming so you'd you'd get in the car get put on your shoes and and get back up to the capitol to take your vote or make an appearance at the committee and then you'd go back to the call room to keep on making calls for money, and I've got to tell you that that the grind. Now I, I took to it well, you know. I, well, I'm I uh, maybe I shouldn't be proud of it. I mean, I was a good fundraiser. I, I knew how to raise money. I I had a good pitch. I could talk to my friends. I could inspire them to give uh, give the money that was necessary for me to keep on doing the job, at least on a couple of campaigns. Probably because you're, you're so eloquent, Paul. Probably because I'm so eloquent, <laughs> uh, but but I I quickly realized that the grind was wearing me down as a member of Congress, and it it, it money has a corrupting influence on our politics. I mean, if you if we look at the impact that the culture in Washington has with lobbyists holding fundraisers for the members and bundling money and delivering it, you're buying influence. And if you're buying influence, then the members, and I don't care whether it's Democrats or Republicans or independents, then the members cannot be totally free to do the work of the people. 
Weston, mm. this is uh, yeah. Chase Hageman with the Concord Coalition. I've had the privilege of working with some of your colleagues recently um, as we sort of partner together and try to find ways to not only have political process reform, but fiscal policy reform. I'm curious, can you maybe share a little bit with listeners uh, what some of the key uh, proposals are or um, positions that Fix Politics Now holds that you're pursuing? You know, What reforms are you looking to see occur? Sure. Yeah, I'd love to. And a little background on me, because I was uh, keen on this stuff, to be honest, as a, uh, a young kid, because my dad was an early John McCain ally in the 90s. I remember the first political issue I ever cared about, probably an unusual thing to say. When I was about 12 years old, I really got bent out of shape by the notion of dark money, this idea that uh, sort of sinister forces, or at least people not courageous enough to stand behind their own uh, desire to be involved in elections was going to hide who they were, but still try to pour money into elections really, really kicked me off even as a like early middle schooler. Uh, but then I also ran for Congress as my incumbent as a reform conservative candidate, got 49.2% of the vote in 2014. I was 27 and I darn near beat my incumbent congressman in the primary. Uh, running, frankly, kind of a centrist reform mind campaign. So this stuff's natural to me. I'm actually traveling on Fix Politics Now's behalf all across the country, this cycle meeting with congressional nominees, closing in on having met with about 20 uh, future members of Congress talking about these issues. And, and one of the starters, because there's such bipartisan consensus, uh, one of the entrees conversation that I use is the, the Honest Ads Act, which uh, our policy shop co-wrote, and it is an attempt uh, to push back on foreign interference in our elections, and, and frankly, to inevitably, uh, hopefully, we can all agree that we can take the, the means necessary uh, and, and, and deploy whatever strategies we have to to keep foreign uh, uh, actors out of our elections. And, and a good first step is to put the same disclosure or similar disclosure requirements that we're as used to for television, radio, and print into digital, onto digital platforms. This is Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXLAM and FM, streamed live over the Internet, archived at nhtalkradio.com, where you can binge listen to your heart's content. We're brought to you by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community, designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, or other forms of memory impairment. Join a tour, celebrate life at the Birches. Call 224-9111. I'm talking with Chase Hageman of the Concord Coalition and Weston Womp of Fix Politics Now and Issue 1 about the dysfunction in our political system. We're going to take a short break and we'll be back after these important messages. We're back. It's Off the Record with Paul Holtz on WKXLAM and FM, streamed live over the Internet, archived at nhtalkradio.com. And uh, you can listen to your heart's content to our live stream and to our archives. Um, take a listen. There are lots of past shows there that you'll enjoy. We're brought to you by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community, designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, or other forms of memory impairment. Join a tour. Celebrate life at the Birches. Call 224-9111. And we're back with Chase Hageman of the Concord Coalition and Weston Womp of Fix Politics Now. And before the break, we were talking about uh, merit versus money in Congress and uh, Chase was about to ask Weston a question, 
when I took us into the break. I got the hook from Paul, so I realized I should ask after the break. So we're back. Uh, Weston, my question had to do with, um, you talked about the Honest Ads Act and how there had been support from younger members. Paul, you talked about sort of the divide in parties here. Uh, is there a push from your perspective, Weston, uh, sort of sort of generationally? Is there a divide on a generational level on these issues? So you have you know, baby boomers and uh, maybe some Gen Xers view money and politics differently than, say, millennials or Gen Z and down the line? Or is this purely a political party issue? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it's a little bit of both. I also think, as has been the case going back 150 years, those people who've had power and want to hold power in Washington do it, and they do it well, and there are games that are very well designed to hold power. And it's not a new trend, but I do think it's one that's gained even more momentum that newer, younger members of Congress, the guys who are showing up, men, men and women from all over the country, their, their recency in the real world is nearer than, uh, than you know, members of Congress who have been in Congress for decades. And so they want to see the, the changes that they wanted to see when they were just regular people. And, and, and there's this sense of urgency uh, that I'm seeing with so many of the candidates that I'm talking to and I, I think part of what's going really wrong here, Chase, is that for my party, both parties are guilty in, in so many ways. But I, I'll specifically say about my party, there's been a trend uh, over several years, certainly post-Citizens United, where the attitude was with regard to money and politics, well, it seems to be working for us. So you younger guys, you reformers, stand down, isn't it working quite well for us? And now that we're looking at potentially losing both majorities in the House and Senate, I think a lot of those fundamental questions, a lot of those assumptions, uh, have to be challenged. And, and, you know, I'd be remiss, if, or at least sort of honest, if I say that it's really Mitch McConnell in so many ways who's the, the defender of money from every source, dark and light, coming into religions, and, and, and I think squelches a lot of the voices of reform from our party. And I think that's beginning to change. That's where I have optimism, as I see particularly in the voices of a lot of former military veterans who are getting elected all across the country from both parties. But I'm speaking, having met with many of them from my party, uh, I'm seeing in those people no real interest in taking this attitude, well, if it's not totally on the up and up, but it benefits my party, then that's okay. Uh, then, you know, the means justify the end, the end justifies the means. You know, I think I think that attitude doesn't really hold among our generation, Chase, and that's encouraging to me. And it's one of the reasons why, you know, there are so many big principles here. Because if Paul and I just had this long, open discussion, we would agree not in part, but we would agree, we would agree in totality, despite the fact that he may be a New Hampshire liberal and I'm a Tennessee conservative. Uh, you know, our better angels, as John Meacham refers to them, uh, it is this idea of some shared ideals uh, for hundreds of years now that Americans have, have claimed. And we gotta, we got to realize that leaders of both parties are capable of doing the right things. But issues like reform, particularly political reform, these are, this is ground where, where we can find a room to agree, even though it's harder and harder in this political climate to admit it. 
Well, you know, I I really do think that the issues that Fix Politics Now, Issue 1, um, are uh, are dealing with, and they were very well laid out. There are a number of issues that came out of a convention this summer in Philadelphia um, with that was essentially the kickoff for Fix Politics Now. Unfortunately, uh, I couldn't attend that, uh, but I'm a signatory on the petition, uh, wherein more than 200 uh, former members of the House, the Senate, the Cabinet, other high administra- administration positions have signed on to a range of issues that uh, deal with some of the fundamental dysfunction in our politics. And lately, what I have, uh, you know, New Hampshire, uh, Weston, is a place where the uh, everybody who wants to be president uh, pays a visit. They they believe that by coming to New Hampshire and scooping ice cream and eating hot dogs and uh, standing up for our candidates here, and there are some presidential candidates who even now, before the midterms, are quietly uh, putting staff in place uh, in New Hampshire. So we're kind of ground zero for presidential politics. And uh, for one reason or another, I, I've gotten to talk to a lot of them. Um, they they now that I'm a gray beard, uh, a, a white haired gray beard, they they come and they seek me out as if I was the, the seer of Delphi and can give them advice. You know, great. I, I, I dispense great political advice like um, you're tall enough, but you really need uh, better posture or uh, or uh, lose a few pounds. Uh, you look better on TV, you know, really good political advice. Um, but but along the way, what I have. Uh, truly come to believe and have advised a number of the presidential candidates is that before you can even think about getting to the issues which may be the burning issues, whether it is health care, immigration, the budget, um, our deficits, our foreign policy, whatever those issues are, what the American people I am hearing and I believe are so hungry for and what people in New Hampshire are so hungry for are reform minded candidates of both parties who understand that fixing the political dysfunction, uh, reducing the factionalism, uh, figuring out how to incentivize a true dialogue uh, between conservatives and liberals, between the left and the right, between uh, Republicans and Democrats, a true dialogue about the issues uh, which then can be presented to the American people with uh, solutions from, from, from both sides or all sides uh, is not going to be possible without reforming fundamentally the issues of campaign financing and publicly funding um, uh, public campaigns, uh, the issues around gerrymandering and drawing districts which predetermine how um, 90% of uh, Congress is elected, and issues around voter suppression in all its forms. And I'm not just talking about uh, the Democratic saw about uh, what uh, what's happened in legislation recently about um, uh, voter ID and things like that, but all the forms that voter suppression uh, may take, uh, under which, by the way, I I put the issues of foreign hacking of elections. Uh, It all has to do with the integrity of the vote, keeping people uh, from voting when we need to promote uh, this great privilege we have in our democracy uh, to vote that so many people seem to be distant from, uh, refuse to take advantage of, uh, don't understand the impact 
of their failure uh, to vote and uh, whatever we're doing as a government in a country uh, to suppress voting as opposed to encouraging voting needs to be changed. But those issues, and I, I just use those three as kind of gra- a grab bag of three primary issues that address dysfunction, which prevents uh, the members from exercising their instincts as statesmen and stateswomen, as opposed to partisan uh, politicians. Uh, we need to, to turn that on its head, uh, reform our politics, uh, and, and reform our democracy as a base as a base for addressing the pressing issues uh, that we've got to deal with to come up with solutions that work for the future of the country. So I've got a question for both of you, both Weston and Paul. Uh, To me, it's a question of uh, chicken or the egg. You know, Weston, you were talking about how you felt leadership is capable of inciting change. And Paul told stories about how he was basically locked in a room doing fundraising, and that was sort of his obligation until he went to a committee meeting. So my question after the long intro is, is this, does this, does tackling all of this require starting with the voters or require starting with leadership and Congress or is a combination of the two? Because I, if you can't get a bill to the floor, you know, so leadership is blocking it. Or if you can't get enough voters to the polls to try to do some ballot measure, you know, what's, what's the actual approach here? Where do you kick off the effort? Weston, why do you start? Yeah. Take it yeah, well, here's how I approach it. When I'm talking to candidates, and I'll be in Florida on, on Monday talking to two nominees who will be in Congress next year, I wrap up the meeting by saying, hey, if, if you took nothing else from what I said, take, take this thesis that I've developed and I've put a lot of sweat equity behind and, and challenge it, but I want you to think about it. And it's this. It's that we're a little bit off when we kind of roundly criticize or broadly criticize Congress as being a do-nothing Congress. Because the truth is, in the last decade, with majorities from both parties, we've seen uh, generational energy policy, generational health care policy, now generational tax reform on my side of the aisle. Congress has tackled big issues, big, big issues in the last decade. What hasn't changed through virtually all of that, Republican, Democrat, Republican majorities, is that the people have somewhere around a 12 to 14% approval rating of Congress. People don't trust Congress. Rasmussen a few years ago did all this research, and 58% of, of Americans, 58% of Americans think that any given member of Congress from either party would sell their vote, either for campaign contribution or money. So the point is, and we don't need to debate why it is, we just need to accept that the American people, right, left, and center, think that members of Congress are going to pay for it. And so what I tell these members of Congress is, you're going with an opportunity to be a part of a series of sessions of Congress that have the opportunity to fix this incredible lack of confidence in this core institution in our country, the U.S. Congress, and particularly the People's House. But the only way you can do that is by proving to people. I truly don't think you're going to see confidence across the country increase in the Congress until Congress begins to reform the way business is done there. And a perfect example are leadership PACs, which everybody inside the Beltway knows are the slush funds that are abused by members of Congress. They'll go and get big donations from corporate PACs, usually corporate PACs that have an interest in their committee, and then they're using these leadership PACs, in some cases, to support other candidates. That's about, what, 50% of the, uh, the, uh, the expenditures are used for. 
for. The other 50%, a lot of cases, are used for personal use. It's almost like subsidizing their income. So I think that the key here, and I think you said it so well, Paul, and I'll just put a different twist on it. The key here is that members of Congress, and it may be new members of Congress, who have to raise a little hell, guys, in order to prove to the American people that this institution still has their best interest at heart. Well, it's it it's gonna be it, it's gonna be a real task. I I have to tell you that um, it, what's interesting to me is that I think that there is enormous grassroots support for the kinds of reforms that we're talking about. Uh, many members of the public uh, don't understand just what happens inside the Beltway and how the internal workings uh, of, uh, of the, of the uh, Congress, uh, and this is both parties, both parties have the leadership packs, both parties are dealing with the fundraising uh, craziness, both parties are dealing with that, and there's a lot that goes on inside um, that really needs to be uh, brought into the light. Uh, democracy dies in darkness. And one of the great things, Weston, that you and uh, we and uh, Fix Politics now are doing are bringing these issues to light. And I think to, as a pointed answer to Chase's question, it's both and. This is going to require grassroots education and grassroots outcry. Uh, social media gives um, the individual citizen new tools to reach out to politicians, to reach out to their representatives. And I urge my listeners of whatever party, whatever stripe, to use those tools to engage because our democracy needs the engagement of its citizens. And it's going to require um, our representatives, our politicians, our leaders to uh, believe and to act like the statesmen that we want them to be and put the interests of the country before the interests of party uh, to reduce the kind of factionalism that our founders feared could infect uh, the republic they had created, this fragile experiment in democracy, which at the current time, in for many reasons, uh, is under um, assault, and it's time for reform. Things have been in place for a long time that need to be changed. It's time. Enough is enough. We've been talking with Weston Womp and Chase Hageman. Weston uh, works with Fix Politics Now and Issue 1. Weston, thank you for joining us. Absolutely. Very, very grateful that you had me. And uh, we're talking with Chase Hageman of the Concord Coalition. That that deep stentorian tone <laughs> is Chase Hageman. Chase, thanks for being here. Happy to be here, Paul. Thanks. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXLAM and FM, streamed live over the Internet, archived at nhtalkradio.com, and brought to you by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, or other forms of memory impairment. Uh, this is Off the Record. We'll be back to wrap up after this. We're back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXLAM and FM. Streamed live over the internet. Brought to you by the Birches at Concord. Well, what a show it's been. I went off on a bit of a discussion, some would call it a rant, about, or a monologue. about Michael Cohen and Brett Kavanaugh. They're not necessarily tied together, except what they hold in common 
is the distinction of being Trumpian. If you're tied to Trump, you're going down, was, is, what, is what I see. Michael Cohen already has pleaded guilty, and it looks like there's a huge credibility question about Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, Donald Trump tried to restrain himself this week, but he just couldn't help a Trumpian eruption, a tweet storm about the accuser, which is only going to inflame and enrage women and all those of any sensibility about the serious issues at hand. And we spoke with Chase Hageman and Weston Womp about Fix Politics Now, uh, a reform effort that includes over 200 members, former members of Congress and the Senate and the administrations, including myself, to try to get down to base, base zero, ground zero, about fixing the dysfunction in Washington. Weston Womp, the son of Zach Womp, a conservative Republican from Tennessee, and I agreed on a lot of issues. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes. Thanks to our great sponsor, the Birches at Concord. Thanks to you all for listening. Thanks to Chase Hageman for joining me. We'll be back next week with more Off the Record with Paul Hodes.